After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Baseball America podcast. Baseball America, bringing you baseball news you can't get anywhere else for more than 35 years. Now it's time to talk baseball. And we're going live at Baseball America's Facebook page. I'm John Manuel along with Matt Eddy. I want to remind you that we're, uh, all our Baseball America podcasts and Facebook Lives are brought to you by Baseballism. Baseballism is the official off-the-field brand of baseball. If you are a fan, you need to check out Baseballism.com or visit their retail locations in Cooperstown, New York, Scottsdale, Arizona, and their new locations in Chicago and Atlanta. Visit Baseballism.com and enter the code BA2017 to save 20% off today. And the best part about that is that so many of you have done that uh, using the promo- promotional code uh, joining these Facebook Lives and, uh, and uh, you know, enjoying the apparel that we're wearing, the hats, the shirts. Uh, we need some mugs. Um, but you've participated enough in these that our sponsorship has been extended with Baseballism. And so we thank Baseballism.com for their interest in Baseball America. And, of course, all of you watching at home for your interest in both of us, uh, both the content and the sponsor. So uh, that's the way it's supposed to work, Matt. So Now, it's not working the way it's supposed to work, though, for the New York Mets right now. And that's what we wanted to talk about as the subject of today's Facebook Live, and that is Noah Syndergaard's injury. I thought Ken Rosenthal of Fox Sports and uh, MLB uh, Network had a fantastic article about this, Matt, because you and I and J.J. Cooper have talked about this in the office, and we're trying to figure it out, just like the industry's trying to figure it out, just like Jeff Passan tried to figure it out in the book The Arm, like so many other baseball writers, so many uh, kind of pitching gurus online. What is the deal with all this velocity? But we live... <laughs> I mean, I guess we had the steroid era for some people, or the PED era, the Mitchell Report era, however you want to call that. We don't have a name for this current era, but we're in a velocity era. And even the commissioner talks about it. I think, these, I think the increased velocity in baseball and the increased strikeout rate, all that plays into the velocity plays into everything. The increased velocity plays into everything that's shaping the game today. It plays into the draft. It plays into pace of play. So... That's a very broad subject, and I thought the way to get at it a little bit was to talk about Syndergaard and the Mets. The Mets went to the World Series in 2015 against the Royals with the hardest-throwing rotation you could imagine, basically. Mm-hmm. DeGrom, Syndergaard, Matt Harvey, Stephen Matz late in the year. And Bartolo Colon. Yes, and then Mr. Fastball Command, Bartolo Colon. So, man, it seemed like the lesson they learned from that was not... Well, I mean, those were the pitchers they had. And every single one of those younger, hard-throwing guys has broken down since then. What's the lesson that you've taken from that? You, you rank our Mets prospects list. I think you probably watch more Mets games than any other uh, games that you watch. What's the lesson you've drawn from the fact that just in progression, every Mets starter has dropped 
has missed significant time in part because they throw so stinking hard, it seems like. Are those two things related? Yeah, anecdotally, I think most of the hardest throwing pitchers in baseball have broken down, or if not, they've had ineffective periods like Justin Verlander. Right. Uh, I guess Max Scherzer is an exception. You know, he's, he breaks all the rules. He does. What the Mets have learned is that, well, velocity yields results <laughs> right. when the pitchers are healthy. I think when you have enough of them, it mitigates the risk of losing one of them. Uh, you know, I, it's, it's almost inevitable in today's game. And that's the feeling that I think a lot of people in the game have, and that's the, that's the hopelessness, I think, that it brings people in the, in the industry and out of it. Fans and people who work for teams, they feel hopeless. Like, it is inevitable that pitchers are going to get hurt. Should it be? I, I, I guess that's the I guess that, That's, that's really a different start. question, yeah. Should it be? Should we just t- accept this, that this is baseball today? When you, to me, this goes kind of hand-in-hand with Brian Kenny's bullpitting idea and how that might be a way to win. It's not very interesting to me to have faceless pitchers after faceless pitcher after faceless pitcher. Which is what we have today through the seventh through ninth inning, essentially. Right. And that is less interesting. I want interesting writing, Elaine. I, you know, yeah. So I don't need everybody to go nine innings. But, you know, we, didn't, we haven't had that for 40 years. Even in the 70s, there were right. guys that do complete games. But if they didn't, you had firemen. Right. And that was – and those guys became bigger than life. They became stars. Goose Gossage and Dave Campbell and Bruce Suter. These guys got big contracts. Bill Cottle. You know, the, Hall of Fame enshrinement in some cases. Right. Um, so the game – so this system, this velocity-centric, give me six innings as hard as you can all the time. Right. I see it at the youth level. I've, I've got parents bringing pocket radar guns to, <laughs> to you know, rec league games. Yeah. Where does it, I mean, it feels like it has added up to an unhealthy culture, and I think that John Smoltz yeah. agrees. I was going to say, you know, Ron Darling on the SNY broadcast last night talked about how in his day. In my day. In my day. I he, played shortstop he, at Yale and liked it. He would throw 100% effort maybe 12 to 15 times per game. I believe that's also in the Christy Matheson's pitching in a pinch. Right, but this is a guy who pitched in the 1980s and 90s. That's my point. This this has been the style for baseball for 80 to 90 years yeah. in the major leagues. And he had a successful, a long successful career, I think, by any measure. And he, you know, contrasts that with today, where it's 100% effort, even against the eight, nine hitters in the lineup. <laughs> right. You know, and it, it just wasn't like that. And when a now, guy doesn't throw hard, when a pitcher does not throw hard on the pitch effects data, everyone assumes they're hurt. Mm-hmm. But that's. That's, no one seems like they ever cruise in, through a lineup for six innings. Maybe it's too hard to do that, but it doesn't feel like it should be that different. I think you know the velocity we're seeing now is also a response to the high offensive levels we saw in the late 90s and early 2000s where the eight hitters could take it deep. Right. And I think this is how teams have determined we're going to counter out, outmaneuver. We're going to counter that. And I think this is it's just progressed to this point where it did seem like there was one school of thought which was like let's get a lot of ground ball pitchers. And the other school of thought was forget that. Let's miss as many <laughs> bats as possible. And the missing bat school won out over the ground ball pitcher school. And it's easy to see why if you're looking at it from the macro level. What's what's more clutch than a strikeout with a runner on third base? Right. It's the ultimate clutch weapon for the defense. No question. No, no question. So um, yeah, that's, that's, that's part of it. I think you're right as far as the source. I, I mean, I think you can go a little bit further back to the amateur game and how the radar gun dominates the draft. We've done some draft studies, yep. <laughs> and we're trying to shape them and form them. I'm not even sure if they'll be out in time for the draft, but how 
you know, present day big leaguers, how their scouting reports read when they were amateurs. And you had to have, well, I think we knew this, but you had to have a certain level of fastball to be drafted high. That didn't mean that you were going to be a big leaguer. It was, you had to have a, I mean, we talk about this in Latin America a lot. The guys who get the highest bonuses are the guys who have some present tools, not just all projection. It's definitely true in the draft. Yep. You have to have present ability, a certain level of present ability to go in the first round. The projection guys are the guys who go in the supplemental or second round and are Teams don't want their first pick always to be that that right. guy. So these pitchers, to be a, but the bar seems like it's gotten higher, Matt. That it used to be you must have this much fastball to be a first round pick. Now it feels like it must you must have this much fastball. Right. I think the most telling example that we discussed is the 2002 draft. Right. Matt Cain, Zach Greinke, through 89-91 in high school. Was that? 89-92. He would touch higher, but of course Greinke or as He's, Alan Matthews used to call him for us. Gronke. I mean, I always think of him that way. But he was a two-way player. He was an accomplished third baseman yeah. in high school who was a two-way recruit to, stand, to uh, okay, Stanford. Number one, Clemson. we haven't seen a, a first-round high school right-hander as successful as either one of those guys since 2002. Not, nobody's even in the same ballpark. I mean, not in the first round. Supplemental round, picks, right. but not first-round picks. Yeah. And number two, at one point in time, this still might be true, they were the two highest-paid pitchers in the game. I'm not sure right. if that's true anymore. But. Not true. And, of course, the top <laughs> pitchers in that draft – were not successful. Brian Bullington, Chris Gruler, Clint Everts, those are the first That's three right. pitchers. That's one of the other consistent things you found is that the first high school pitchers, right, especially the first high school right-hander taken, <laughs> generally that track record is not good. You don't want to be on that list. That's typically a bomb. It is typically a bomb. But the fourth guy taken that year was Zach Greinke. And the next guy, uh, even just the high school guy, was Scott Casimir. And the next guy was Cole Hamels. So it doesn't mean that you can't be a successful high school first round, but that's how you draft 15 years ago now. That's three long careers. Casimir yeah. was still around last year. Has he pitched it this year? I think he has. I think he's coming back for the Dodgers if he hasn't pitched. Um, and Granky and Hamill still have Hall of Fame potential. And Matt Cain, again, still active, as you said. That's a really fruitful high school pitching draft. Yeah. It just wasn't at the top where, again, Grueler and Everts didn't work out. So... Those guys weren't necessarily the hardest throwers, but they were in the clutch of hardest throwers, I would say. Grueler uh, had a great workout with the Reds. Right. Um, and the Reds were notorious at that time for inability to develop arms, and yet they've gotten a lot better since then, whether it's domestic guys, college straight to the big league guy like a Mike Leake, or Latin American guys like Johnny Cueto, or Homer Bailey, who was a 2004 first-rounder. They've <laughs> developed a lot of guys of all shapes and sizes since then who've been productive big league starting pitchers. So... I mean, they learned some of their lessons from the past. Um, but the industry seems to still be in this trend. Uh, Matt, I guess you know, we talk about it at the amateur level. That's where John Smoltz focuses on a lot. Yeah. You heard him do this at his Hall of Fame speech mm -hmm. in Cooperstown a couple years ago. He's still banging that drum of learn to pitch before you learn to throw hard. But we definitely are in the opposite direction. Yeah, his two main points, as I recall, are, like you say, more minor league reps. Yes. And also... Not not so much dedication to the game when you are an amateur. Play a different sport in the fall. He's huge on that, and I think that's consistent across the industry. Um, I hear that all the time with amateur scouts. They're looking for two-way players, but uh, two-sport players, I should say. But they don't always find them, I don't think. And I think we do have specialization mm -hmm. at the amateur level. And when you have the youth baseball showcase circuit, which I do think... Some of the critiques are very fair. I think some of them are overdone a little bit. Sometimes we throw a blanket over the whole thing. 
Um, but to me, there are so many events that I think players feel pressure to only play one sport. So from a young age, so they can be on these elite travel teams. And those travel teams do make high demands on your time. Just yeah. uh, from, from the age of 10. Basically. And the short-term payoff is a larger signing bonus. Right. But the long-term drawback could be injury, proneness to injury. Yeah. If, if Smoltz is correct with his theory. Right. I mean, what's the way he put it in this uh, article from Ken Rosenthal? Is it's the red line factor. When you keep running your engine above the red line, you're going to blow it out. If you race your car too hard for too long of a period, it's going to overheat. Noah Syndergaard seems like he has enough stuff that every pitch doesn't have to be 99 miles an hour. Right. But he certainly seems like, how, do you think there's a, and I'm not singling out Syndergaard, is there some machismo here of a yes. pitcher who, because it feels like it took Justin Verlander several years to realize, I don't need 98, 99 every start. Every pitch, I need it when I need it. You know? Uh, Chris yes. Sale's the same way <laughs> for the Red Sox. He's learned to dial things back. And right. He's more, I mean, those two guys were two guys I was debating with JJ. Like, who would you rather have long, for the next four years, Sale or Verlander? Mm-hmm. You'd rather have Sale maybe because he's younger. But I'm, I'm on the Verlander train. of he, I think he's, what he's doing now is still sustainable. You know, I think what he did last year, man, he's had some ups and downs already this year. But I think what he did last year seems sustainable to me. Yeah, that is the, the rap on Syndergaard. The fact that he would not go for an MRI. Right. Um, the fact that he clashes a little bit with the front office regarding his injury diagnosis. And now this, he, he came out of this, his start been pushed back two days, and he comes out throwing as hard as he can yeah. to, to the first few batters. I mean, so. wasn't he the hardest throwing starter in the big leagues last year? Yes. And he came to spring training. Last two years. 17, miles, 17 pounds heavier saying, I'm going to throw even harder. I mean, right. when's hard, hard enough? So I'm not trying to bang on Syndergaard, because one thing about this guy He's so much fun to watch. I love seeing pitchers who mm-hmm. get up on top of that mound with such swagger and just confidence like he does. He embraces the whole ace package. Correct, which you want your ace to do, the guys who get paid like this. So it's, it is difficult. Let's, let's take some of our reader questions, uh, and I want your reaction to them. Uh, Sean Clark asks, what pitcher has the best mechanics who can't stay healthy? I mean, I, I think it's all of them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> which pitcher has stayed healthy? Matt, I mean, I, I, Among power pitchers, Verlander's the guy who stands out to me. And Granky, Grant. I don't know if he's, he's pure. I don't think he's pure power, but no. But he's a power he's, pitcher. He's a power still. pitcher. Yes. He, I mean, he is more like Maddox, but he throws harder than Maddox. Did, I think at his peak. Hard slider. But like too. the most durable pitchers I could think of of our careers here at BA, among them were Dan Heron and Barry Zito, and I wouldn't say either of those guys had classic mechanics. Either of those guys were on the disabled list a whole lot. True. Dan Heron was very durable for a long time. And he kind of hooked it in the back. He threw splitters. I mean, well, he can correct me if I'm, if, you, if I'm wrong. I mean, he's on Twitter. He'll correct then, me. But then again, nobody would teach Max Scherzer to throw how he does. He's, exactly. He's one of the best and, he and is, healthiest. He also is durable. So, you know, when he came out of college, I had several scouts tell me Mark Pryor had perfect mechanics. Um, clearly not. I will say that the, the, the injury that started him on his downward uh, trajectory when he bumped into Hesop Choi, kind of got run into by Hesop Choi and had an Achilles issue. So once the legs go, I think everything else kind of cascades from there. Um, I can tell you when you look at Mark now, you would never nickname, you would never call him Calfzilla. It's a very different body now that he's a pitching coordinator for the Padres. And just seeing him last year at the Futures game where he was the pitching coach for the U.S. team, it was startling. He's just a much different body than he had when he played. Um, Richard Fisher says, Dave Campbell. Yeah, I said Dave Campbell, the guy who was like the fireman of the year in 1976. 
Got a giant uh, free agent contract from the Red Sox. That's why I remember it. Um, <laughs> I don't know him either. Uh, Ryan, well, he, he, he's a guy. <laughs> Pretty sure it's Dave Campbell. Maybe that was Soup. Maybe it's a different Campbell. I'll look him up. Uh, Ryan Kosiorik, Kosiorik writes, let's not talk about those that don't throw 100% every pitch. Mike Leak, Jamie Moyer, Greg Maddox. Should we try to find a balance? I thought, yes, we should try to find a balance, but I think Mike Leak would be offended that you lumped him in with Jamie Moyer. So, hmm. uh, at least from a velocity standpoint. But Mike Leak really stands out as a pitchability guy, but also is a fourth starter. I mean, he's not. Right. Even peak Jamie Moyer won 20 games. But he's filthy rich now. Mike Leak, yes. <laughs> and he's been, paid, uh, uh, he's been paid for his services. Um, but Mike Leak also, premium athlete. Two, you know, could have been a shortstop in college if Arizona State had needed him to play shortstop and if they hadn't needed him so much on the mound. And that's, uh, but he's never really been more than a third or fourth starter, has he, Matt? Yeah, he's just, he's a ground ball mentality guy, early contact. Right. Um, David Hammond Sr. says at a 9U tournament two weeks ago, he saw a young man throw 100 plus pitches. Arm health starts when they're young. I, I would agree with that. Again, I think that's one of the reasons why we see. Uh, so much discussion of this with the youth level, and that's where John Smoltz really directs a lot of his ire, I think you would say, mm-hmm. is on the kind of this the overly organized youth baseball. And JJ has a great idea for this, Matt, which is someone, uh, I'm giving away his app idea, but someone just needs to make an app where you keep, keep track of your workload year-round. And I think the PitchSmart app from USA Baseball allows people to do that to an extent, but that should be stuff that we can track for amateur players going forward. I mean, there should be, we should be gathering the data now, but we are a little shy of data, aren't we, Matt, in terms of, uh, I think we, everybody knows what we have a problem, but no one knows exactly what the problem is, and that's mm-hmm. t- part, of the, pr- part of the difficulty in finding a solution. Yeah, very much. I mean, the, the prevailing thought used to be pitch counts, pitch counts. Were, right. Were the only thing that mattered, but... That has not now been that the we've case. Been, now that we've conditioned to lower levels of pitch counts, I, we're still finding the injury risk is... As prevalent, if not more so, than it used to be. Do you feel like pitch counts help in any way? Do you, or you know, do you feel like? I guess also, a, do you feel pitch counts I, have helped at all? And B, do, are there organizations that, in your mind, handle starting pitching development well, based on the anecdotal evidence that you have? It's possible the pitch counts used to they focused on young pitchers who hadn't right. yet cleared the so-called injury nexus. Have they helped? We're seeing a lot fewer shoulder injuries. I guess that's one way to, pos- to spin it positively. <laughs> that, that seems true. That but, we uh, don't see the rotator cuff, those kind of injuries. The injuries are moved down the arm. <laughs> and we're seeing a lot of guys reach the majors before they get injured. Hmm. Uh, anecdotally speaking, can you think of a guy... Well, we use more pitchers. The industry, I say we. Major League Baseball uses so many more pitchers now. When you have uses more everybody. 13, right, more players of all kinds, but especially more pitchers. And especially mm-hmm. more disposable relievers. I, I think that's actually really part of the issue. It's just that the relief pitcher genre is so disposable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you see guys who are big leaguers every year go on – every year there's one or two guys who go through four or five teams on waivers, mm-hmm. you know. And it gets a little bit more attention every year. I wrote about it like three years ago with Mikey O'Brien. You see it happens every year with two or three Mickey guys. story, correct. Yeah, it was a Mickey. Oh, Mickey Story. I don't know who the hell Mikey O'Brien is. <laughs> Sorry, Mikey O'Brien, but I'm sure you're a dude out there. But Mickey Story, I think, is who it was. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really disappointing to to me that this that that's the direction we're going in. What can stop it in your mind, or did, has John Smalls talked about this? What stops the trend mm. for the velocity line always going up? 
Uh, it's a copycat industry, baseball. If, if one team implements it organization-wide, like pitchability over velocity, right. or on par with, and they have success, I think that's the only way it's going to I mean, to change. Like if some team had put together Stephen Wright and R.A. Dickey in the same <laughs> rotation and one with knuckleballers, you might see a knuckleballing team. You know, that's, I think that's one of the reasons why there's so few knuckleballers in big league history. A, it's hard, but B, they generally haven't been and, stellar. And based on last year's data, velocity does correlate with uh, run prevention moderately. It's, you, it's, did, you did a little research on this. Yeah, it's, it's not super strong. It's a moderate correlation, so it's not like... Each tick of velocity gets you a certain number of runs shaved off your ERA. Right. But, the, but the there is a weak, you know, moderate correlation. But the Rangers and Red Sox and Blue Jays were playoff teams that had lower velocity yeah. uh, pitching st- starting rotations in the, general. But two of those teams, the Blue Jays and Red Sox, had knuckleballers. Correct, yeah. You, you pointed that out pre-show. I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. We should probably throw those data points out. But the Rangers... Rangers had the lowest velocity in the majors among, right. for, among rotations last and, year. And the Giants and Dodgers were playoff teams as well, mm-hmm. lower velocity. I mean, the Dodgers certainly threw a million pitchers out there, but some of those guys were extremely highly touted, and, and one of them is the best pitcher on the planet. Right. I guess that's my thing is that Kershaw and Bumgarner, Bumgarner's hurt now, but it was obviously an off-field accident. Those two guys are, even when Kershaw's not durable, he still puts up mind-boggling numbers when he's healthy. So to me, Kershaw, like in the previous generation, Maddox was the was a model. Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz, those were the models. Right now, to me, the models are Bumgarner and Kershaw. Yeah. I mean, obviously they're both left-handed, and they're both physical, just giants. You know, they're so strong. They do it completely differently. Uh, Kershaw's over the top and throws a lot of breaking stuff, right? Yep. And Bumgarner is lower slot and throws a ton of fastballs. Mm-hmm. So there's two different. There's a lot of different ways to get there, but neither of those guys gets there by throwing 95 every pitch or trying to throw 95 every pitch. Um, I guess that's where I come back to is the max effort. That used to be a negative. I know. It doesn't seem like it's a negative anymore. No, teams don't view the six-inning starter as a bad thing. I mean, it's it's just... The game. It's a fact of life now. It affects me when I'm doing draft calls and even when I'm doing, like, just lo- at the top of the draft. Locally here in North Carolina, we have J.B. Bukowskis. Um, I see him pretty much every weekend in Chapel Hill when I have a home game. And, you know, he throws – he threw 19 sliders in the first two innings the other day, mm-hmm. Matt. And this is against amateur hitters. Now, a good amateur team with a 400-hitter hitting second and uh, guys with double-digit home runs hitting three and four hole. One of them was Seth Beer, who walks a lot and – it was the freshman of the year last year. So I understand why he was throwing so many sliders, but it was a lot of sliders, and the scouts who were there were like, well, this is a reliever look. And I kind of got it I, more maybe than I ever have with JB, why scouts considered it a reliever look. At the same time, he, he pitched seven innings. I think he threw 51 sliders out of 112 pitches. That's wow. a lot of sliders. It's wow. a lot of sliders. Uh, that, that catches your attention. That's a lot of sliders, is it not? Yeah, this, I mean, is, this is probably a phenomenon that's occurred before with a college pitcher. Correct, and so that's the thing, is is this guy going to hold up under all these sliders? And his delivery has been compared to Scherzer's because he's got a little bit of a, because he has a lot of effort to it. Um, so scouts are questioning, so it comes up in the draft as well, but one of the reasons why I've always thought, well, maybe this guy can do it as a starter, A, gets compared to Sonny Gray a lot, B, okay. um, B just what you said, the expectation for starting pitchers has come down from 240 innings to like 180 to 190. Yep. 
right? I mean, like Kyle Hendricks was the yeah. ERA champion for a World Series champion team last year. And mm-hmm. he threw, what, 180 innings in the regular season and 20 more in the postseason? Yep. So right around 200 innings, that's a lower expectation than 260, uh, what we used to have. A couple other questions we had online. David Hammond's senior asks, Mark Capel was highly touted with his mm-hmm. velocity and mechanics. Is he still, he's still in AAA. Can't remember if he was a two-way player. He was not uh, at Stanford. He just pitched. And I don't believe he played other sports uh, either. Mark Capel's more of a stuff-over-feel guy. He's exactly like the kind of guy that John Smoltz, I would say, that, that not he wouldn't criticize specifically Mark Capel. I'm not, criti- I'm not speaking for John Smoltz. But that kind of pitcher who's stuff over feel, that's the kind of guy that he would say, we've got too many of those in baseball. That's fair, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and then uh, Lori Scully asked several questions. All my sons pitch, play in every possible position. Pitch count's vital. It's common sense. But so is common sense. Then she says, talk about Kopech. I would reply, can you say please? <laughs> but I'll also say, yes, we can talk about Michael Kopech. He's the hardest thrower in the minor leagues mm-hmm. now that Alex Reyes who was in their hardest throw in the minor leagues, is hurt. And, of course, this year's draft, we have Hunter Green, probably the hardest-throwing pitcher in draft history. Until the next one. We talk about a guy. Right. But we have one of those every year now. <laughs> I know. Yep. We had Marley Pint last year. Two years ago, we had Tyler, Tyler Pollock. Pollock. Um, what's your reaction when you hear about a guy throwing 100 miles an hour in high school? Tick, tick, tick? <laughs> I guess a lot depends on the body type. You know, is he athletic? He like, is athletic. That's the, that's the number one thing. And it's just Riley Pine. Those guys are much more athletic bodies than Tyler Kolick, who is a big, strong body with some athleticism, but not the level of athleticism that Pine and Green have evinced. Right. But it would concern me. I think an, old, an older school approach of looking at it for a pitcher who's not physically maxed out, maybe throwing in the low 90s now, has room to add. Maybe they would represent a better yeah. risk profile. Again, you want that present ability, but at the same time, present ability with some projection left. You can't really project on Hunter Green. I mean, he's throwing 100 miles an hour now. Right. What are you projecting? Is he really going to throw? But we also had a scout last week tell us he had the best arm on the planet, better than our oldest Chapman, because he could maintain that velocity deeper in the games. Even, I mean, it's like his amateur competition, but that, that was loud to me to hear him say better than... <laughs> better than a role as Chapman. Better pure arm. That's a lot. Would you make him the 1-1? The first 1-1 high school rating? No. No, I would not. Because that track record of high school pitchers and that first pick overall, that is daunting and uh, unsettling. I don't know how else to put it. Brutal. Un- it is brutal. It's really unsettling. Uh, a couple other questions. Uh, Ryan Kishork again. Thanks, Ryan, for checking in. Um, both two guys actually commented about Felix Hernandez. Uh, was he overused by the Mariners in his career? Ryan kind of countered to David Hammond saying that he's pitched professionally for a long time. He has a lot of professional innings on his arm. In the major leagues, it's 2,400 innings. I would say it's not that the Mariners pitched him too much. I would say it's more the Mariners wasted his peak years by not being competitive. And there were like a couple winning seasons in there. But it's a little bit, in baseball terms, a little bit tragic and a guy like Felix Hernandez never got yeah. to be on a great team. Yeah, yeah that, that's the, the great uh, conundrum all teams face is, you know, it also feeds into this velocity spike is why waste, quote-unquote, quote waste a pitcher retiring minor league batters when he could be helping your major league team. Yes, especially at this velocity. I think we've, had, we've both have heard scouts say you only have a certain amount of bullets 
Especially right. with, with higher velocity, I think that the chamber empties faster, to use a bad gun analogy. <laughs> I don't know anything about guns, so I shouldn't be the one making that, uh, making that uh, remark. We're going to talk more pitching uh, this afternoon on a podcast that we're going to do with Kyle Body of DrivelineBases.com. Uh, Driveline Mechanics is one of these kind of pitching. Uh, well, they don't just do pitching, but they're where like, technology helps players train, basically, and there's a lot of that that goes on. I think that training, improved training methods, is another source for increased velocity in baseball. Mm-hmm. Can that be a source for reduced injuries in baseball? So I think we all would love that for that to happen. I, I think that's the main thing we all have in common is, well, do we have more velocity in the game, or if it goes down, I think we'd all love there to be fewer injuries. Uh, teams would love it. I think fans would like it if their favorite players stopped getting hurt so much. So good stuff, Matt. Enjoyed the discussion with you. Thank you all for the questions again. Uh, and the interaction on Facebook, uh, on our Facebook Live. We thank you for tuning in to our podcast. And for those who listened uh, on our podcast and watched here on Facebook Live, all our podcasts and Facebook Lives are sponsored by Baseballism, the official off-the-field brand of baseball, offering apparel for men, women, and kids. If you're a baseball fan, you need to check out Baseballism.com and visit their retail locations in Cooperstown, New York, Scottsdale, Arizona, Chicago, and Atlanta. Visit Baseballism.com. Enter the code BA2017 and save 20% off your order. So for Matt Eddy, I'm John Manuel. And for our director, producer, Linwood Webb, so long, everybody. We'll see you the next Baseball America Facebook Live. This concludes our program. Want more in-depth baseball coverage? Be a better fan. Visit BaseballAmerica.com to get more comprehensive baseball coverage. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.